Hey, I'm Lance. And I'm Mike. And we are bringing to you a new podcast underneath the In Love With The Process umbrella called Right Place, Right Time. Right Place, Right Time. What does it take to be in the right place at the right time? Is it just luck? I think I think you can increase your chances of it. I think you can put yourself in a position to more often than not find yourself in the right place at the right time. To to have a random encounter with someone out in public and then maybe later on down the road that's the love of your life or to wind up in the right conversation that opens the door for your career i think it's possible for us to put ourselves in that position and take more control I, i'm also curious as to whether or not it's just sort of a dismissive statement that someone says <laughs> you know oh i was in the right place right time really was it your dad that got you that? <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, we're going to tackle this. We're going to sort of get to the root of it. Like, is there, is, does this actually exist? And if it does exist, what are the things that you can do to make it happen more often, more frequently to recognize what this thing is? And if a right place, right time moment is like a thunderstorm that's approaching, can you have a backpack full of lightning rods? Yeah. So I'm excited. Lance and I are doing our regular show together. Mm -hmm. And uh, tune in here at the In Love With The Process Network, Thursdays, same RSS feed as In Love With The Process. That'll come out on Tuesdays. Thursdays will be right place, right time. So tune in and uh, get ready because maybe lightning will strike you. As you heard, uh, it is true. The new shows are coming with me and Lance. They should be starting uh, around February, I think. Early February is the plan. And uh, hey, welcome. You're listening to the Thursday Catch-Up episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? If you uh, can't tell by the way I sound, uh, I am out of the back end of COVID. Thank God. It was uh, quite an adventure, to say the least. <clears throat> and my voice is still just a little gravelly, but uh, I'm pretty much at the other end of it. Like, uh, we did a test a few days ago, and it came up negative, and it was just like, thank God. <laughs> thank God. I needed it. I needed to be out of the back end of it. Um, it was uh, a forced vacation, one would say. It was uh, about, took me seven days, eight days, really, to get over the whole ordeal. 
Um, <clears throat> but uh, the benefit of it uh, really was being able to watch as many great movies as I possibly could. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed my episode where I started to talk about a lot of the films that I was watching. And today I want to <clears throat> specifically, I, I'm always coming back to this filmmaker lately. I'm always coming back to this filmmaker and it's surprising to me. I don't know why. Um, he has been such an influence in the background for my work for years. And I've always, I've always given more credence to his brother, you know, and I've always said that his brother is a bigger influence on my work. And I don't necessarily think that's true, actually, now that I've done some assessment and I've sort of examined, like, why, why do I keep coming back to Tony Scott? Why do I keep coming back to Tony Scott? Um, and, uh, the past two movies that I just watched with him really uh, were, were kind of eye-opening on uh, sort of understanding how much of an influence Tony Scott's been <clears throat> in my work and the type of movies that I enjoy. Um, and so we're going to get into that. Uh, before we do, thank you everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the podcast on Instagram. That's in love with the process pod. I have been meeting and reaching out and meeting all sorts of new folks. I, If you guys have been following me for the past few years, you know that I uh, semi-regularly, once I get a larger group of new followers, I like to... Um, <clears throat> sorry, I got distracted. There's a new Guy Ritchie trailer. Oh, interesting. Um, I like to reach out and do posts that I title Getting to Know My Followers. I want to learn more about the folks who enjoy my work. Uh, and I pose a few different questions. What do you do for work? Is it your dream job? If not, then what is? Um, and on this last one, I also asked the question of what camera do you own? Because I'm just curious uh, about, you know, are people brand Horace anymore? Or are we just sort of getting what we get our hands on? And surprisingly, the answers of, on that have just been, you know, whatever I get my hands on, you know? And there are still a lot of folks that are using old Canons out there. There's still a lot of folks that are using cameras that are over 10 years old. Um, and still creating great work with them. So it just goes to show you that uh, you don't necessarily need to be on point with gear all the time. Um, but I've been meeting bits and pieces of everybody, which I, I love. Like uh, someone posts, I'm a pharmacy technician. My dream job is to be retired. Okay, there you go. Uh, I'm a makeup special effects artist. Uh, I'm working in movies as a makeup artist is something that I've been working diligently to make a career and I am now getting enough consistent work to sustain my lifestyle. Hell yeah. But I'm always working to get better as an artist and work on bigger and better productions uh, and work with well-known production companies such as A24, Marvel, Lucasfilm, etc. Hell yeah, man. Um, <clears throat> let me see here. Who else can we introduce? Just sort of scrolling through. Uh, business journalist and nonfiction author. Uh, if I were more successful in the book trade, that would be a dream job. Uh, I am a Nikon owner. I can barely use it. Uh, here's an interesting one. I'm a ballerina and a part-time float plane dispatcher in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Ballet is my dream job, and I've always loved it. But I'm basically, but I am basically geatric. I just completely cannot pronounce that for some reason. In the industry right now, the next dream is to be a pilot. Um, excellent. I wonder what, I have to ask, like, what is part-time float plane dispatcher? So is that, <clears throat> is it seaplanes? Is that what that is? 
Uh, LA-based DP with a humble red package. Okay, dude. Don't advertise the fact that you have specific gear. That shouldn't be the most important part of what you do. Um, let's see. Who else is interesting here? Working an office job just to pay the drill, pay the bills. Dream of being a full-time writer-director. Okay, you should do it, man. Get started. Let's see what else. I'm a costume designer and a fashion stylist. It's definitely my dream job. I love filming movies. Hell yeah. As you can tell, there's lots, and we've got hundreds and hundreds of these responses. I love doing these because it really uh, solidifies uh, my understanding of who the hell tunes in, who watches the movies, and uh, who uh, listens to the show. My voice is still cracking. <clears throat> I'm an English teacher in Brazil, but I also have an independent movie company where I live. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Bartender. Hell yeah, man. Continuously uh, feeding the habits. <laughs> that's really, I love bartenders. Uh, project management labeling. What does that mean? Project management labeling. Not really, but I like people. I work for mostly. What is a project management labeling? A lot of these corporate titles, it's just like, <clears throat> what exactly do you do? Uh, I'm a self-taught federal trades contractor, writer, published photographer slash music video producer. Okay. Uh, electronic story music creator with a massive network and body of work stacking up, but not limited to my dream job is to keep exponentially expanding and scaling while wrapping all passion points. <clears throat> Jesus, dude. And vetted network connects into one powerful stream. Okay, buddy. Okay. Okay. You're doing good. <laughs> <clears throat> You're doing good. Office coordinator for court, reporting business, uh, dream job. I don't know. I don't dream of working. There you go. I love to spend my life on my arts. I have a digital camera. Pretty cool stuff, man. If you guys are at all curious about who listens to the show and who also uh, watches the films and who's part of the Superfans group, go onto my Instagram at Mike Petchy and just look at the 229 <clears throat> different comments underneath this post, which is pretty crazy. And one would assume that uh, Instagram would find the fact that this many people commenting on a post would mean that it's something that everybody wants to see, but it claims that only uh, 11,000 people are worth this post out of my 140-something thousand followers. Fuck off Instagram. You know what's interesting is I was... Um, I was watching this thing on YouTube and they were talking about how all of these big YouTube creators are quitting, right? They're now walking out. Um, and the big question was, why are all these YouTubers, these, these big folks that with like millions and millions of followers, why are they bailing? And if you do a little bit of research, you come to find out that the main reason is that the algorithms are really fucking them over, right? They're really fucking them over because apparently, from what I understand... Uh, YouTube now requires you to be posting and shooting at the highest resolution possible, which is 4K, which requires a lot more time. I think people don't understand how much more time it is to do something in 4K as opposed to 1080 uh, and how much more storage space that requires, especially if you're just content creating. Content creating is just hours and hours and hours and hours and hours that you're logging and you're stacking 
Um, and so you start playing in that 4K territory, <clears throat> you're getting into terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of footage. The other thing that is a big deal is that you have to be posting longer content now. Now, in this game where the streamers are all fighting for your attention, YouTube's like, well, we're going to keep pumping them out, baby. So give us as much as you possibly can. You have to at least once a week give us a program that is over 30 minutes or over 25 minutes or something like that. And uh, a lot of these YouTube creators are just exhausted by it, exhausted by it. And I've heard complaints from them where they are posting these things on other channels and other outlets, whether it's TikTok or wherever, and they're getting millions of views, but they're posting them on YouTube and the algorithm is slamming them all the way down to where they're, you know, barely getting a few hundred views sometimes, a few thousand views on the same content because this algorithm is uh, is really fucking them over. And what what ends up happening is is that you're working harder, right? You have to do more. You have to churn more out. You got to put more hours in, and the return hasn't gone up. And oftentimes, it's it's diminishing returns. It's actually gone down. Um, and so you're seeing uh, this really affect the creators and the content creators. And I think we're going to see a real big shift in YouTube because of it. It's just this game, right? And I know that there's an argument out there and I've seen people sort of argue it that like the algorithm really doesn't dictate what you shoot, what you do. That's bullshit. It does. And even though uh, it's an algorithm, uh, it's not even AI. Let's be, let's be real about it. It's an algorithm that has been programmed by the company to specifically uh, force the folks that are creating stuff for them to create it the way that they want it made. Right? It's just the way it works with these things. So, um, now, instead of having to pay creators and pay folks that uh, run their shows and give them budgets for that kind of thing, it is still all based upon views. It is still all based upon clicks. It is still all based upon advertising within those views. And now uh, you now have control over who's actually being able to see the work, how many of your hundreds and thousands of followers actually get to see your stuff. And this seems to be a pretty intense trend that is running through all social media stuff. And I don't know necessarily if it is something that is uh, evil. I don't think it's like the evil, you know, corporation doing this game, the game. I think it's just the side effect of them saying, hey, let's create an algorithm that continuously puts good content, what we consider quote unquote good content, which is bingeable content, which most of the time is just the same thing over and over and over again to keep these people mindlessly there as we autoplay our way through the day. Um, and so that just seems to be the race, the struggle of how can we continuously put these things out? Something that is familiar, something that feels just like what they just saw, something that gives them the same sort of emotional roller coaster ride that the piece that they just finished watched had. <laughs> wow, barely got that out. And, um, you know, keep them, keep them hooked, baby. Keep them, keep them hooked. Keep them plugged in. Strap in. Um, and the byproduct of that, I think, through this whole process is that you're no longer in control of your audience. You're no longer in control of what your audience could see. And believe me, I've seen this with Instagram. You know, if there's 140,000 fucking followers, these are people that went out of their way to click follow. And they went out of their way to click follow because they like the content and because they hope to see the content again. And um, I don't know how many of my followers are just like, I, I didn't even know you're doing new posts, right? Just because 
my content isn't sort of kicking in at the same level as someone else's content is. And so the big question that I've had, if people have been like, why are you posting so much content of uh, uh, gore and visual effects and all that kind of stuff, which most people like, and I enjoy it. But uh, I repost that stuff because that is the content that's doing well. And so hopefully the byproduct of that is that that puts it high on the algorithm. That shows up randomly on your feed and you go, oh, what else is Mike posting? And then you go back and you look through all that other stuff. It, it sucks that you have to sort of play this game. And this is the game that is being played with content creators across the fucking board, which is fascinating. Um, I don't know how I got on this tangent, but uh, it's been on my mind. I think it was because I was watching something last night on it. Um, so yeah, we'll see, man. We'll see, uh, where this goes because <clears throat> the, the, the whole selling point of the internet for all of us creators was that we can now be the managers of our own content. We can directly interact with our audience and we can directly be a part of all this stuff. And I, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you guys. I don't know if like clicking and doing the bell and subscribing and all that bullshit does anything. At this point, I don't, I don't know if it does anything, you know? So if you guys want to keep up on my stuff, just when you listen to me pitch you on the show, just go check out my Instagram, go see what's going on. Um, because that stuff does help with the show. When our sponsors see that you're engaging all the way across the board, they stick around and that, that keeps me around and that keeps me in your ears and that enables me to do this stuff and make movies and shit. Anyway, so um, before we get into the Tony Scott thing, what else is going on? Oh, I had uh, a moment of inspiration the other night, and I, I, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, like it, it sort of just shows up randomly, and it was, for me, it always shows up like right before I'm going to go to bed, which is the fucking worst, because it's like, do I go to sleep? Do I not go to sleep? And I had this really cool idea. I had this cool idea that sort of showed up. And I was like, that's interesting. And then I started to fall down this rabbit hole and this idea started to take shape and form pretty fucking quickly. And I was like, man, this is cool. Like, what is this thing going to be? I don't know. Let me start writing this down. So I had to get out of the bedroom, go sit down in front of something like a pad, a paper. And I just like chicken scratching my way through shit. Okay, this is interesting. This is interesting. This is interesting. And then uh, it, it was more of a, it was almost like an exorcism right? Because I had to get this shit out of me so I can go to sleep, right? Because if I didn't get it out on the page, I would be, you know, guiltily kicking myself in the ass the whole time going, you're going to lose this idea. It's going to disappear. So I wrote everything out and I went, can I go to sleep now? And it took me a few hours later. I had to watch something. I had to read something to sort of clear it out of my brain. Um, and the next day I woke up and I started writing, which was fun. Um, and I wrote, this thing has sort of ended up in a short story form. And it's really fucking cool, man. It's a really cool piece. Uh, slightly violent, slightly fun. Um, and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. There's a, there's a piece of me that is like, man, this would be a great short film. But then it's always, anything that I shoot is always loaded with like, yeah, but how does this become something more important? How does this become a feature? How does this become something interesting? How does this become something sellable? That is always bucking me whenever I'm about to sit down to do something. But I also don't want that to stop me from doing stuff. So we'll see, man. It's a it's a cool piece. It's called The Exhumer, which I like. And uh, I just sent that out to some friends. We'll see what their responses are. Um, and we'll see. We'll see, man. Like, maybe it's a new piece I could shoot. And I think you guys would really fucking dig it, actually. 
I think you guys would really fucking dig it. It's totally my vibe. Um, and speaking of my vibe, I, I've really just sort of come to be okay with my aesthetic and my need and my type of storytelling, the type of storytelling that I like to do. And the big concern consistently when you're trying to get things made or you're trying to get work or you're trying to put yourself out there is, are my stories relevant right now? Are my stories current right now? Are my stories stories that an audience wants to see and listen to and to watch, right? Um, and so the big struggle with so many people that are trying to get into this business is that you're often trend chasing and, and trying to make things feel current. And, uh, you know, I hear this all the time from folks when I'm pitching ideas, they go, well, the most important question is, is why now? Why now? Why? <laughs> why should you tell the story? Because I, I'm inspired by this story right now. Yeah, but what what is happening currently that is relevant to what the story, it doesn't need, at its core, what I want to talk about is always current. It's human emotion. It's dealing with death. It's always fucking current. It's always there. It doesn't matter if it's like, you know, at the top of your fucking Twitter feed or X feed or whatever they call it now. Um, it's, it's, it drives me crazy. And so whenever I have a great idea like this, I'm always taking pause and going, okay, is this something that I'm going to invest money into? Is this something I'm going to invest time into? Is this something that I want to shoot that's bigger and larger? Um, and so that's kind of the position that I'm in with this piece right now, where I'm sort of stewing on it. I've got a few others that I've written over the past six months that haven't made it past this stage. And so I'm wondering, you know, I like this piece, so we'll see. Um, but what I should do is, and let me know if you guys would be interested in this. Leave me a message on Instagram. Um, but uh, are you guys interested in reading my short stories if they don't become films? Are you guys interested in reading that stuff? Because I could put that together for you. And we could put that sort of thing out there and um, that m might be where some of these things live. Um, and then if that's where they live, then I should feel good about that, right? Like if they don't end up on screen, it's okay, maybe. This is me talking out into the ethos to try to convince myself of being okay, potentially. Um, so as I was going through and writing this stuff and putting these things together, I found, um, well, and then I started to watch... Uh, a movie the other day. So I, I, I put on this film called Unstoppable. Do you guys remember this? Denzel Washington, Chris Pine. It's the movie about the train that uh, basically is rolling. On, it's running unstoppable on these tracks, and it's going to murder all these different people, and it's got all sorts of explosives in it, and if it crashes, it blows up. It's like the ultimate sort of, you know... 90s, 2000s action movie sort of formula, which is great. Um, but I fell back into this because I, I really didn't give this movie much attention initially because it just seemed like there were so many of these movies coming out at that time. Um, but I fell back into it because I've been deep in this Tony Scott hole. And uh, I started to watch this movie and it's really fucking good. Unstoppable. Check it out. It's really good. For the genre that it's in, it's perfectly done. Uh, this is Tony Scott's last film uh, before he died. So uh, it is him at the top of his game, at the top of his game. Him taking the script about this runaway train and using every tool at his disposal, using every one of his tricks and techniques 
uh, to make this uh, a nonstop thrill ride. And it's, it's, it's a fucking great one, man. And the thing that I love the most about his movies, and this is something that, this was sort of like this revelation that I had. So much so that I was like, I, I literally filmed a very specific scene from the movie off the television and I sent it to a bunch of my filmmaker friends just going like, this is why I like to make fucking movies. What Tony Scott does really well is that all of his supporting characters, all of his side characters are incredibly flushed out to the point where they, the movie could be about them. You could watch a movie about all these different characters and they're generally funny. They're incredibly well textured whether you're talking about their wardrobe and their outfits, or you're talking about just their body language and their blocking. Um, think about any sort of Tony Scott movie, like uh, this one, True Romance, uh, Man on Fire. Uh, it's just their side characters and all the people that are playing around our main characters and texturing the film are as interesting, if not more interesting than the leads, oftentimes. And this is something that has always influenced me without me thinking about the fact that it's been influencing me. And when I go back and I look at all of my films and all of my short films that I've done, the scenes and the sequences that I'm the most proud of and the stuff that I really, really like have uh, side characters that are interesting to watch and look at. And if one would argue that 12 Cam is essentially an entire movie about side characters, entire movie about all those type of side Tony Scott characters that you would see in other films. And um, I even said that about the recent film, Come Home, my new movie with Lance, is that Lance's character in that movie is essentially a side character from these action movies that we really love, um, just flushed out, and, and basically the spotlight sort of turned on to him. And... Uh, Man, there's a sequence right at the beginning. So if you watch Unstoppable, there's this really great sequence that sort of sets up why the train is running and what what happens with it, who fucks it up. And it's these uh, these two uh, side characters and their interaction with the tower, which is essentially the guy that's sort of keeping track of like what trains are on what tracks. And uh, the guy um, who's in the tower, I can't remember his name, but Lance knows who he is. He's a, he's a Boston actor. Really great guy. He's uh, giving shit to uh, Ethan Suplee. Do you guys remember who Ethan Suplee is? He basically came up to Kevin Smith. Um, he was uh, uh, in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. He was the bigger guy in Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, look him up on IMDb. He's a great actor. He's 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 crushing it. Ethan Suplee is uh, playing with uh, T.J. Miller, comedian, the guy from the later Transformers movies. Um, the two of them play sort of like these blue collar young guys who are kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of hungover. You know what I mean? Dudes that I used to work with all the time, um, and. This scene between those two guys and the guy in the tower sort of telling them, hey, you got to move that train, you got to do this stuff. The scene is incredibly short. And just the, the exchange between the guys, the humor between the guys, the way that the dudes are dressed are, is impeccable. And just the fucking body language of these guys and how they respond to being ordered around by how they move their bodies. 
Um, and when you look at these two cats, you don't recognize them right away. Like Ethan Suplee, he's a bit more recognizable, but it took me a hot second to realize that it was TJ Miller playing the other character. And that's how fucking good they are. You feel like Tony Scott just sort of turned his camera onto a few union workers uh, in a train yard in the East Coast. And these are guys, like, if you're stuck in traffic on the Mass Pike through Boston, you look out the right-hand side as you go by the train station or train areas, and there are these these workers. There's usually, like, five or six of them to fucking sweep up a pile of something. You know what I mean? It's these guys. And uh, he does such a great job doing that. And when you watch the film, I love it. It makes me smile. I watched that scene. I probably rewound it, like, six or seven times, just watched every bit of that scene, how he, how he covered it how we paced it, everything involved with it. And I went, man, fucking, this is why I like making movies. This is, this is, this is why I want to make movies. And it's so weird to say that um, because a lot of people are like, look, I, I want to change the world or I, I've got a message and there are certain people that need to be uh, put into the spotlight and that's why I'm going to tell to do this film or like my dad really never gave me the attention I deserved. And so me making this movie is, you know, to remind my dad that I'm not a piece of shit like this. A thousand reasons why people make movies, and and I think I figured out what mine is, which is just these little moments and these little scenes. And when you talk about people not being represented on screen, when I see workers, I see people that work with their hands that are the people behind the scenes fixing our toilets, the people behind the scenes that you call when uh, a tree falls. Uh, on the power lines, the people that you call uh, when the trains stop working. Um, these are the folks that are behind the scenes, you know, every day uh, working for salary or, you know, working for overtime um, that make our lives run. And I, I'm always fascinated by these folks. And it, it's probably rooted in my childhood, I would say most definitely is rooted in the fact that when I was a kid, I used to look out my bedroom window at the guys next door and they would, you know, were working on cars all the time or they were building benches or they were working with tools. I think I was just always really fixated on that stuff to the point when I got older, um, I didn't, I really wasn't a student and I wanted to work with my hands and I went down the street and at 13 years old, uh, forced my way into being an assistant for uh, a machine shop, a garage, worked with my friend's dad for years. Like, because I loved that whole thing. I, I, I would just look out that window as a kid and sort of paint the picture of who these guys were. Um, and then being able to do that for years and, and sort of getting lost in that world, I, I kind of realized what it really was about, right? It really was about, there's a lot of addiction that was involved with that stuff. There's a lot of like money issues and money problems and uh, sort of uh, limited education uh, and then sort of family home at home dramas and uh, kids issues and having kids too young and all this sort of stuff that just really started to texture these characters and these, these men that would then use humor and, uh, you know, especially on the East Coast, giving each other shit as a means of coping, sort of a coping mechanism. And within that sort of language, there was a lot of therapies that were involved with it, where people would be like giving each other advice or, or listening to each other's woes and stories and sort of processing, uh, which is very specific now, because now we're allowed as men to be emotional, but 
prior to that you weren't so it was like you know don't be a fucking pussy about it you know what i mean that was the, that was the sort of lingo but what that essentially was was saying like i'm hearing you i'm feeling emotional i'm feeling uncomfortable about what it is that you're saying but i'm hearing you and i identify that and i <laughs> and uh you know here's my advice kid you know and so i i think all that stuff really excites me and I, I know I sort of fell down a sort of rabbit hole here, and I was sort of triggered just by the performances of Ethan Suplee and uh, T.J. Miller because they embodied these two actors, these two Los Angeles actors who I, one would uh, assume that neither one of them has ever been on a train yard, has ever worked with their hands. <laughs> one would assume that they haven't. Um, they fucking embodied this shit. And uh, I've seen them act in other things and not be as good and not have embodied that as much. And so then I had to ask myself, like, what is it? Um, what is it that makes Tony Scott special? What is it that makes him more special than the rest of them? Um, and so then I, I, after watching the movie, and I sent this thing out to a bunch of folks, and I was getting really solid responses from all my buds. Like, yeah, this movie's amazing. And this is, yeah, we agree. We love movies because of this reason. And you go, okay, all right, cool, it's relevant. Um, then uh, I sort of fell into a hole with Tony Scott. And you, whenever you sort of dig around, especially with him, because he's he's been in a bunch of interviews, but he there isn't a whole lot of behind-the-scenes footage of him working on sets and stuff, which I'm completely saddened by. Because I've heard from amazing friends of mine, amazing directors, whether uh, we're t I, like it's Joe Carnahan, um, it, my buddy Zach Merck, all these guys knew Tony and he was a mentor to them. And I'm completely fucking envious of that because apparently he was such a great mentor to filmmakers. And you can see this by the movies that he's produced and that he's helped get off the ground. Um, and, you know, he was half of, of Scott Free and one would even say, I saw an interview with him where he said, uh, look, the difference between me and my brother is that my brother's classical music and I'm the rock and roll music. <laughs> and he's right. He's right. Um, and I wish that I had seen that and been a part of that. Um, and uh, so anyway, I uh, was hunting, right, to try to find a nugget, right? And I was going through all these different interviews and trying to figure out how he works with actors. And I was going deep. And I found this bit where he said, uh, it was for this movie, Unstoppable. And he said, uh, my process is this. Once I know that a movie's going to go and I have a movie that's going to go, I just jump on it and I push it. And I push it as hard as I can. And he's like, and I keep everything running. And so he took the writer who wrote this film and he said, look, we're going to go do research. And they he went and embedded the two of them in with dudes that work in train yards and dudes that work in that space. And apparently what he did is he took his camera with him. He had a small camera with him and he would just snap stuff that he saw in that space. He would just take photos of things. And he, he said specifically about uh, Suple and TJ Miller, he was out doing a location scout or he was walking through some space and he saw these two guys off in the distance and he took a photo of them. And that photo stuck with him. And he's like, if I hadn't taken that shot, I wouldn't have decided to have like a skinny guy with a fatter guy. I wouldn't have decided to have the heights the way they are. And I wouldn't have decided to have their outfits be the way they were if I hadn't taken this photograph and seen this photograph. 
And then he further went on to explain that when he collaborates with his heads, with his keys, whether it's his um, you know, wardrobe folks or his production designers, he takes these photos that he takes when he's out doing his research and his homework, and he presents them to them. And he goes, I think a character should be wearing this thing. And he might have a shot of some guy from the train yard in a car hot. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he found these uh, images of these dudes wearing what looked like oil helmets, like oil uh, dr drilling helmets. And he had figured out that that was part of the whole process. And so then when you start to hear these things, you go, oh, right, it's not magic. This guy isn't some magical dude. He's just got a really good fucking process in place. And of course, of course, he's finding all these details because he goes and does his research and takes these photographs. Of fucking course he does. It was really interesting. And it was really cool. And it was incredibly fucking inspiring. And um, I really enjoyed watching that movie. Uh, it's a fun movie to watch. Like I said, it's shot amazingly. He does all sorts of really cool and interesting camera tricks. Everything's practical. They actually fucking derail a train that they built uh, for this movie, which is nuts. Um, and uh, the helicopter work in this film is just fucking like jaw dropping and outstanding to watch. Um, and I loved it. It's a great movie. Uh, go check it out. Unstoppable. And because I'm on this Tony Scott kick and I've been watching his stuff and I'm going to continue watching his stuff all week. Uh, last night I went back and watched another great one. Um, based upon an interview that I, when I was doing the research, I found this interview and he was talking about a film called Crimson Tide. Do you guys remember Crimson Tide? Gene Hackman and once again, Denzel Washington movie about, uh, the nuclear submarine that is stuck in a conflict. Uh, apparently the Russians are pissed. They're got their fingers on the trigger. And so the U S government sends out their submarines and says, get ready. Uh, we're going to send you a command to potentially launch. And Gene Hackman plays an older uh, submarine captain who follows the rules, and he's got a, a way of doing things. He's got this cute dog, which is funny. Um, and then Denzel Washington plays his new CO who thinks about things differently. Um, and the two of them go head-to-head -head inside of the submarine. And it's fucking great, man. And it's a completely different type of movie than Unstoppable, which is very much open, very much high speed, very much uh, lots of action, lots of vehicles, lots of all that kind of stuff to, to rely on. And with Crimson Tide, it is very much a play, very enclosed, tiny spaces, and all these really amazing actors uh, engaging with each other. Um, hold on a second, guys. I'm getting a call. I got to pause it for a hot second. have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. Sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. 
All right, I'm back. I had to take a quick call. Um, I just went to the doctor's this week as a checkup, and I didn't get my pharmacy information. Uh, so just in case you guys were wondering <laughs> where my pharmacy is, I can give you the address. <laughs> um, so uh, Crimson Tide. Uh, so it's a great stage play piece. Amazing cast. Gene Hackman. I love Gene Hackman. Love Gene Hackman. Anytime he's on screen, he's just fucking phenomenal. And the quote that brought me to it was uh, uh, Tony Scott was talking about a specific sequence, how Gene Hackman's character has this little dog, has this little beagle dog. Um, and uh, he had to really sort of push the limits of what really happens because he saw this tough submarine captain walking around in a silhouette with his little dog in a leash. And I guess... You could get away with that if you're in the in the Navy. I think he was sort of stretching it because he loved that visual so much. And there's a scene he was talking about in an interview. He said, uh, this is moment where Gene Hackman's sitting with the dog and he and the dog sort of barks at him. And Gene Hackman goes, At ease, at ease, soldier. <laughs> and what Tony said, he's laughing in the interview. He goes, The dog was biting Gene. <laughs> And that wasn't a scripted moment. Apparently, the dog had just nibbled him, and Gene was like, "Eddie's soul share." It stayed in the character. And when he said that, I laughed, and I said, "I got to watch that movie again." Um, awesome fucking movie, man! Amazing cast: James Gandolfini. At that point in time, he was always brought on as being sort of like the quiet evil guy, you know. And he'd have like that smile. You know, with his little teeth hanging out. He always looked like the mean kid that would, like, pick on you and bully you. That was his thing for years until The Sopranos. And even in The Sopranos, there were moments where he would ah, breathe heavy and his tongue would stick out and he'd get that fucking dark eye look. Uh, he Amazing fucking actor. Amazing actor. Um, Vigo Morganson's in it. Anytime Vigo's in anything. Anytime Vigo's in anything. He's amazing. He plays a really great supporting character. And all once again, all of the supporting characters in this film, all of the small roles, all these little moments, all these guys are so beautifully textured. And, and when you watch this movie, you remember them more. And, and Denzel Washington is great in this fucking movie. But I really remember the other characters more than him. You know, and Gene Hackman's great in this movie, but he's great in this movie because of him and the dog and the combination of him and the dog. Ah, man, and the guy who plays the first mate... So fucking good, man. Hold on a second. I got to look him up. Crim. Tide. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Hold on. IMDb it, baby. IMDb it. Let's see if we can look at some cast here. Uh, I, you got to love the fucking cast in this movie. Once again, this is uh, Tony Scott. I think he was working with uh, Jerry Brockheimer. It's him and the Brocks coming back at it again. They work together a lot. Let's see. Who are these guys? Vigo Morganson's in it. Uh, oh, George. I'm going to fuck up his last name. Dezunza? George Dezunza. His last name is D-Z-U-N-D-Z-A. Look him up right now on IMDb. Go on an IMDb ride with you or with me. Uh, this guy, you've seen him in so many things. And every time he shows up, he's fucking... Great. He was in Deer Hunter. He was in Basic Instinct. 
Let's see, what else was he in? Grey's Anatomy was on that show. City by the Sea? Weird movie. Uh, hold on, I'm trying to see. Species 2. Uh, great, great supporting actor. And one would argue uh, that without roles like uh, the roles that uh, uh, Tony Scott was giving him, uh, he wouldn't be as remembered. Um Oh my God! This 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 kid, Lilo Brancato, who plays the radio guy, so fucking good. What else has he been in? He's been in so much stuff. He was in the Bronx Tale, Renaissance Man, Adventures of Pluto Nash. So fucking good, man. I love this stuff. And these are the kind of actors that, like, when you're sort of texturing on a movie, you're like, "Can I get that guy?" Steve fucking Zahn. Steve Zahn, who we all know is is the funny guy. Last time I saw him was in Righteous Genstones, and he was fucking great in that. But Steve Zahn has a, has a part in it that's really great. Fuck yeah. Rocky Carroll. Matt Craven. This guy, Matt Craven. What else have I seen him in? He was fucking good in this movie. He was in X-Men First Class, A Few Good Men, Jacob's Ladder. That's why I know him, Jacob's Ladder. He's in the original Jacob's Ladder. Um, killer, killer cast, killer movie. If you guys haven't seen Crimson Tide, watch Crimson Tide. I think you'll love it. I think you'll love that film. Um, and here's the other thing. I, I'm constantly battling, and you've heard me talk about this on the show. I'm constantly battling... Um, how I feel about a lot of current movies. And I'm, I'm constantly battling the notion of like, am I just, am I an old dude? Am I becoming an old dude? Do I just not like stuff because I'm becoming an old dude? Is it not current? Is it because it's not made for me? And then I start questioning, like, have I just lost my empathy? Have I lost my empathy in movies and films? Um, and, there's a bunch of stuff out, out right now that everybody's getting jazzed about. And I think it's fucking awful. And for, to be specific about it, the, the new True Detective series. Everybody's excited about this new True Detective. Let me look this up so I don't fuck up names. Um, hold on. And so everything about the True Detective series, it has the formula for something that I should and would like. Right. So it takes place uh, up in some sort of Antarctic area. It feels like it's got elements of the thing in it. It's got elements of 30 Days of Night in it. It definitely has sort of this supernatural vibe. Um, uh, Jodie Foster leads, and I love Jodie Foster, man. I think she's a fucking, she's a killer when it comes to acting. And she's just always been great. Uh, the last movie that I really loved her in was Panic Room. Um, but as she gets older, she's also one of those actresses as she gets older and she gets sort of this road roadmap uh, across her face. Um, I, I just, I fucking love looking at her. I love watching her on screen. Uh, and of course, we all know her from Taxi Driver and Silence of the Lambs, right? Um, so yeah, okay, great. This This should be a thing for me. I should be fucking into this. But there's a lot of red flags. When they started to run the advertising, they really weren't pushing it as hard as the other ones. It's a, they're calling it a, 
a true detective story or something like that. Um, and you're like, mm, there's a lot of red fucking flags here, man. Uh, and then you realize that Nick, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Pizzolatto is the guy who uh, created uh, True Detective and did the, the past, what, three series, four series. Uh, he's not involved with this. He's just listed as an executive producer. And you're like, eh, okay, all right. Um, and so then I started to watch the show. And uh, went. Th- I, I tried to get my way through like one episode and I found myself just going like, I, I don't connect with any of these characters. I don't understand wh- why are these characters doing this thing. They don't feel like cops. There are moments when you're when you're watching it and they're trying to figure things out where you go, I, I feel like this. The, I'm listening to a couple of screenwriters in a room talk about how to figure these things out. Then they start crowbarring specific folks in and out of it. And you, you're just like, uh, what the fuck? So like, I get through like uh, an episode, and then I'm like, all right, well maybe I maybe I got to get into the second episode, um, and I do. Uh, the, I start the second episode. I get about five minutes into that, and I'm like, I can't even fucking. These scenes are pissing me off. So then I start fast forwarding it through the episode to get to the back end of the show because that's usually where they stack all the cool stuff. Is at the usually in the front or the back of the show, and so then. Uh, fucking nothing 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 and so i'm just like this isn't good man it's just not good and uh so gina's watching it she likes the show and so right off the bat i'm like okay so why does she like the show and i don't like the show and so then i start asking her a bunch of questions and she's like, oh, there's a whole supernatural element and it's really interesting. And I think that's going to be the, the most interesting part of it. And then there's a piece of me that's also like, yeah, but they're probably going to make it not supernatural, which is going to piss everybody off, you know? Um, and then I was like, okay, all right, well, this is not for me. And she's like, well, do you, do you want to watch it? And I go, no, I can't. And there's, there's a problem that I have with a show that I don't like. I just can't watch it. I can't just watch it because most of the time when I don't like something, it's sort of triggering something guttural in me where I'm like, no, fucking, and, and, and then it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut. So when I'm watching, I'm the worst person to watch something I don't like with because then I'll be sitting in the room going, I don't buy it, you know, or this person's an asshole or rolling my eyes or just sort of letting the stress out of my body that I'm feeling because I feel it really intensely. So I guess I, I am pretty empathetic to what it is that I'm watching. Um, but it's rude. And so my whole thing is, is that if I don't like a, a thing, I'm not going to watch it because I don't want to fuck it for, up for anybody else. And if you guys are enjoying this new True Detective, I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to fuck it up for you. I'm just trying to prove a point here. So I watched the show and then um, Gina d- does some research on it. And it turns out that the woman who is the show creator for this new thing, apparently, now this is what I've heard, apparently... She went to HBO with the idea for this show. She went to HBO. What's going on back there, boys? The rats are chewing on something. She went to the uh, HBO and said, um, 
hey, I want to make the show. And HBO came back to her and says, well, why don't we make it a true detective? And she's like, well, it's not really a true detective. And they go, well, let's make it a true detective, though. It's the only way we're going to make the show. And so then she does it, and now she's getting slack from everybody or flack from everybody that is like, fuck, this isn't a good true detective. This isn't that. And she's like, it never, I never wanted this to be a true detective, but that was the only way that the show could be made. And so then when you know that that sort of bullying and pressuring came down from there, um, and she didn't have enough clout to get past that, to make it on her own, then you also, when you watch the show, and I have issues with specific things that happen in the show between characters, I have specific motivation issues, I have specific issues straight across the board that just feel like fucking notes like that, that are just sort of sliding in and saying, hey, this should happen, and these should be these type of people, and this should happen like this, and you know what I mean? And so, so now you're chasing what, what I was talking about before, right? You're chasing what is supposedly current right now and telling stories that are supposedly current and telling stories that uh, are supposedly important to tell right now, which at the end of the day, you can't help but think like, no, this is what their idea of filling a quota is and how to fill a quota. And you know what I mean? I... I'm not. I'm trying to be not as specific about it because then if I'm too specific about it, then folks are going to just be like, "Well, you're a guy," and you know, that's that's not what I'm. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that when I watch this piece, it feels loaded. It feels as shitty as a piece from the 2000s that was completely made by a studio or by, made by, uh, you know. Uh, execs without an artist involved. And what is I think even more saddening about this is that. There is the DNA in this series that you feel like the artist, the woman that put the show together, was really interested in the lives of the the natives from this specific area, uh, the dealing of that, and, and what happens uh, within their uh, social group and their social structure, and how that leads to uh, you know these crimes. Like all that stuff seems inspired. Right, but then that is then fed through, <laughs> fed through the fucking machine. Right? Oh, that's a great idea. Why don't we make it a Cloverfield movie? It's not a Cloverfield movie, though. Yeah, but let's make it a Cloverfield movie, because nothing that what they're essentially saying is that you, as an artist, your story isn't interesting enough to garner a large enough audience to justify the budget that it needs. So what we need to do is stamp it with a with a title or with an idea that may do that may automatically pull the audience in because they see true detective oh i love the original true detective shows we'll pull them in pull them in with that we're not really doing a true detective right now the guy doesn't really want to do one so yeah this is a good idea we own the fucking name so boom boom stamp it go i didn't know any of that when i sat down and watched episode one of it and then by the time i got about 10 minutes into episode one i felt like there was some sort of shenanigans going on and i didn't even do this research gina did this research so when she came to me with it i went okay all right so my barometer does work in there. It does work. So it's kind of shitty then, right? Right, it is kind of shitty. And so then when I watch all these other programs that are being put out right now through the streaming services and on how they're made and what they go through to be made, you sort of sit there and you go, these aren't that good though. These aren't that good. And then when I spent the time during COVID and I went and I watched a bunch of stuff on Criterion. I, I dug deep and I went back and watched a bunch of movies I'd never seen before and got, I fell back in love with cinema again, fell back in love with movies again. Um, and I realized there's a lot of great content out there and my barometer is not broken. My barometer is not broken. It's just not the current streaming shit that is just saturating fucking everything. 
And the thing that really disappoints me, and no offense if you catch who I'm talking about, and he, if he's listening to the show, when I talked to a friend of mine who I respect and work with, and he was just like, yeah, I like the new True Detective. And I was like, why, dude? <laughs> I just get mad in my head. I'm just like, why, though? Are you not challenging yourself enough? Like, are we not challenging ourselves? Yeah, okay, great. It's, it's rising to the top of the trough that we're all feeding from. But that's the only reason, though? Oh, it kind of reminds you of the thing. That's the only reason, though? You know what I mean? And I know that this is out there. I know that people feel this way. I know that there's so many folks out there that are like, why isn't there original content? Why isn't there something interesting? Um, I just read this article that was, you know, fed to me. And it was basically about um, uh, Mindhunter, Fincher series, great series that was on Netflix, uh, two seasons of that series on Netflix. And he basically came out and said, like, Netflix came to him and said to him, look, this show doesn't fit a formula enough. So can you adjust the show to fit a formula? Can this fit True Detective? Can this fit something else and make this into some sort of formula? And he went, no. <laughs> and they said, well, we can't justify how expensive these, these episodes are. If, if we're not cramming it into a formula that we can then sell to more people and get more people to watch. And he goes, I'm not going to do it. And they said, all right, I guess we have to cancel the show. And that's why that show got canceled. And it was a great show really well done, made you think about a really good, a bunch of really great stuff, great performances all the way around. Uh, men and women, amazing performances on that show. Uh, phenomenal craft. And uh, they canceled it because it wasn't, it, you couldn't roll it into that, that, that cheese, cheeseburger paper wrapping. You know what I mean? You couldn't make it into something that people looked at and went, oh yeah, true detective. You know what I'm saying? So you go, fuck, all right. So these are the main places that are creating content right now, and this is where I'm fighting to get in. And it's this game, this game. And so then all that stuff runs through my head as I watch all this content, and I watch this stuff on TV, and then I start to get irritated, and I got annoyed with myself, and then I'm just mad. And then I fall into the spiral, and Gina gets mad at me because she's like, you can't relax, you can't watch anything with me. And I go, you're just watching a whole lot of shit, though. You know what I mean? And it's this hole I fall into. Do you guys feel it? When you listen to me, are you just, do you feel like you're just listening to a guy that's over 45 right now? Is that what you feel like? And you're just like, dude, you're old. <laughs> You've lost it. You don't understand. I, I beg to fucking differ. I beg to differ. I think I do understand. And I think that uh, it's hard to try to keep myself out of the brainwashing that we all fall into religiously right now. Um. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Or maybe I'm just a fucking, maybe I'm full of shit. <laughs> Obviously, I'm insecure about it, right? But anyway, <laughs> positivity, dude. If you are in the mood to go watch some epic, 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 really well done action, great side characters, really funny side characters, really well done movies, go back and watch the catalog of Tony Scott. I'm going to continue to do so. Uh, I think I'm going to watch True Romance this week. It's been a, it's been a while since I've seen that uh, little trivia. Uh, Quentin Tarantino wrote that. Uh, Tony Scott directed it. Uh, I just saw an interview with Tarantino where he said that Tony Scott had a better ending than his original ending was, which is great. 
Uh, also in that same article, he was talking about how he was younger when that movie was made and he was arrogant, surprise, surprise, arrogant uh, about the whole process and he refused to go on set because they didn't invite him on set as a writer all the time is what he was saying. <laughs> wonder, wonder why, did, why he thought he was arrogant. Um, and you also just missed out on like the best film school ever, man. You could have been hanging out with Tony Scott all fucking day. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to watch True Romance. I uh, have a Blu-ray of um, Thelma and Louise. And I have to get a good Blu-ray player. And have you noticed the Blu-ray players are fucking expensive? Like ridiculously expensive. And they're going to be even more so now that they're cutting out uh, physical media. Right? I, I just heard that like, what is it? Uh, Best Buy and Walmart are no longer selling Blu-rays. That means physical media is going to be dead, dead, dead. Dead, dead. Deader than dead. Uh, so I have to get my hands on one, Michael. You have to buy one quickly before they skyrocket to thousands of dollars for these fucking players. Uh, but I got the True Romance Criterion, uh, not True Romance, uh, Thelma and Louise Criterion, which is uh, Ridley Scott, not Tony, but, um, and I'm excited about that because of the commentaries on that. So anyway, um, that's what's going on. Your boy's out. Your boy's out of COVID. Uh, new episodes are on the way. Um, and like I said, the Lance on uh, my show, uh, Right Place, Right Time, will be starting up soon. Hopefully February 1st, we're recording a couple more episodes this week. Uh, get that queue nice and full and bloated. Um, and uh, lots more on the way for me too. So thank you everybody for listening to the show. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, yeah, I'll see you next Tuesday. Living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad.
Crisis. 